Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 92. I'm Dan. I'm Brentley. And before we jump into it, I'm going to remind you guys, as always, to please like, comment, share this if you dare. Subscribe. We appreciate that. Definitely drop comments. We love to hear feedback on the episodes and the conversations that we're having, which are very important and touchy subjects. And donate, of course. Um, help support the show. It's a lot of work to do this. We've put a lot of money and time into it as well, and it's a labor of love, but it would be nice to get something back for it. With all of that said, today we are joined by Brian Cloudis. I said that right, right? Yes. Brian Cloudis. Uh, I'm going to read a bit from, I'm going to read from your bio on your website, just so people get an idea of who you are. Uh, Brian, Brian Cloudis is a pioneer in immersive site-specific theater revolutionizing how modern audiences experience familiar classics. As CEO of Brian Cloudus Experiences, the Alabama native turned roving director wants to do more than just tell a good story. He takes his reimagined shows to the next level through innovative techniques, coupled with picture-perfect settings, like hosting a musical production of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in a historic town, staging the sound of music on the side of a mountain, and Mamma Mia on a beach. Cloudus is committed to redefining what site-specific productions can deliver. He brings his ideas to life on a large scale. He has even been known to sink a makeshift Titanic and orchestrate live helicopter landings. Brian has made a national name for himself by producing shows that do more than just tell a story. They immerse audiences in experiences set in unique locations that are all-consuming, mesmerizing, and compelling. Brian, welcome to the show, and thanks for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for coming, Brian. Quite the intro. What was that? I'm sorry. That's quite the intro. Thank you. Hey, it's for, it's from your your bio. So whoever wrote it did a good job. I think it explains pretty thoroughly what you're all about. But you're you're all about more than this, and we're going to talk about some of that as well. Actually, that's that's probably what I want to start with. Um, Maybe we'll go into a bit of like your background. Like, how did you get into theater? It says you're from Alabama. I know you lived in Georgia as well, and you currently live in Florida, correct? Yeah, um, I was born in Alabama, like in the country. Um, you know, growing up in the sixth of Alabama, I always wanted to get out. Um, but it's funny now, my my paths have brought me back to more rural communities. But I would say you can't really escape your roots, you know. Uh, but I went to undergrad in Massachusetts. Then I moved to New York directly after that. And, you know, I was an actor for the first part of my life. Um, you know, so I was doing that life in New York, um, you know, doing regional work. I did a Broadway tour. I worked for Tokyo Disney. And then, um, you know, I sort of got sick of the New York lifestyle. Like I am, I'm like, you know, I'm a country boy through. And you don't really realize that until you're like, you know, thrust in the city for years. And, you know, I miss my family. So, all roads kind of led me back to the Southeast. I got my grad degree from South Carolina. Uh, so I went to grad school and University of South Carolina um, and then moved back to the Southeast and really started establishing myself um, as more of a director producer. Uh, you know, the thing I sort of hated about being an actor is that you were dependent on everybody else. You know, I wanted to be in control of my career and my life. So I started directing and producing and quickly realized that was really my gift. Uh, I started a company outside of Atlanta and, you know, I didn't have, you know, the means to build a physical theater. So we just started doing these things outside uh, based on necessity. 
And quickly, we developed this really, you know, niche category of reinventing things and outdoor locations. And, you know, it started in Atlanta and then people around the country started reaching out saying, hey, would you ever come to our community and do this? So then I started a, a for-profit leg of what I was doing, Brian Cottis Experiences. And then that took off um, and it just kind of exploded from there because it was something, you know, so unique. Um, and, you know, I was never super political. Um, I was kind of that apolitical guy. I didn't care about politics. I didn't vote. I just didn't really think it mattered, you know. Um, and then in 2020, I was part of kind of this wave of cancellation. I had a past employee come after me very publicly claiming I was this, you know, awful racist human. Um, you know, in the theater industry, it used to be this, I mean, this sort of like opening, welcoming, <laughs> accepting place. Um, but I remember my last two years in Atlanta, it was all about like group therapy and talking about pronouns. And I'm just sitting there like literally rolling my eyes. I'll never forget we, one rehearsal, you know, and the, the younger they were, the worse they were. It's like the kids coming out of college. It was like, oh, my God. And they were like, you know, we need to sit in a circle and talk about our pronouns. And I'm like, what the hell is she talking about? And so then they started like going around the circle and they were like, the first person was like, well, I'm cis male. And I was like, what the hell? And I was thinking S-I-S. And I was like, oh, well, he's kind of like flamey. So that means he's like cis male. And I was like, well, I'm not quite like cis, but I'm not like super butch. So I was like, you know, where does that put me? Sort of like in the middle. And like literally I went full circle until at the end, I realized, you know, it was cis. I born that way. And that was when they had just completely lost me. And it's like, you know, you used to like be hardy in theater and kind of like want to work hard. But I mean, you just had to start like stepping on eggshells. And I always say you could not be woke enough, you know, and for me, interestingly enough, the production that led to my cancellation was Ragtime, which is the celebration of, you know, America being a melting pot. I mean, quite possibly one of the wokest shows, you know what I mean? It celebrates Jewish Americans, African Americans, you know, I mean, it was really the story of Ellis Island. Um, and, you know, for me, I was always kind of known as the guy who just cast the best person in the role. I didn't make a big deal out of like, you know, what skin color you were, what body type. I just said best person always gets the role. So funny enough, in that production of Ragtime, we had an Asian actress playing Evelyn Nesbitt, which is historically a white woman. And we had a Latino actress playing Emma Goldman, you know, historically a Jewish American woman. So it was interesting, like you could not go woke enough. And I always say, once you start getting woke, that's when it gets dangerous because that, you know, they devour you. Um, but yeah, Ragtime was ultimately the production that led to me being canceled because a year after it, I had an actress say that, I mean, crazy things like, oh, I spent more time with like the white leading lady or you know, you didn't really, you know, give the black actors enough time. I mean, just like these most insane um, allegations. And it was at that, it was right after George Floyd when this was kind of happening, like, just like every, every white, especially male in a position of power was just kind of being attacked out of left field. And, you know, I saw all these people in the theater industry doing this kind of like begging for forgiveness and apologizing for 
you know, their whiteness and their privilege. And I'm like, y'all, I grew up poor in a trailer in the middle of Alabama. Like, I don't know what kind of privilege y'all were born with, but like, I ain't apologizing for this. So I just said, this is absolute bull crap. I'm not apologizing. And, you know, I had people on the inside being like, oh, my God, just beg for forgiveness. And every, I was like, I'm not doing it. I just knew in my heart that I was not going to, like, bend the knee to something I knew was not true. But um, I pretty much lost everything. I had 11 clients all across the country. Um, all of them except one um, bailed on me. And then um, I went through a year-long lawsuit with a client. Um, that I'd signed a multi-year deal with, ultimately winning. Um, so they always say the best revenge is money, and it turns out it is. Um, you know, so it was a very interesting journey. And me being, and I, you know, I always used to kid around before my cancellation that, you know, I was a Republican and just sort of to see how, like, you know, we kind of read the room. But I just knew I wasn't this, like, woke, liberal, crazy stuff. Um, and then also, you know, I was just always curious, like, why everyone hated Donald Trump so much. So when I went through this public canceling, it was kind of my opportunity to get educated. I started, like, tuning into people like Candace Owens, Dave Rubin. Ben you got red-pilled. But, yeah, I mean, literally, I was red-pilled because of my personal experience. And I just remember listening to these people and thinking, gosh, they're so smart. They're not emotional. They're just stating fact. And as someone who had spent my entire life manipulating audiences' emotions, I was very quickly able to really see firsthand what media was doing to people um, and this kind of like witch hunt that was going on in our country. So I started learning and then I got vocal about my politics and then I, you know, came out for a second time as a Republican. And when I did that, that was... I was going to bring that up. I pulled up your... Uh, I found your Instagram post from October of 2020, which was basically like your, your coming out, your second coming out. <laughs> the first one wasn't hard, you know what I mean? But the second one, oh my Lord. I mean, it was, in, it was insane. And that's when, that's when the shit really hit the fan. They were like, oh my God, of course he's racist. He's a Republican. I mean, it was just, it was insanity, you know? Yeah, you, you brought up the, you know, the casting thing and, and the diversity of casting and stuff for Ragtime. And I, I'm going to get into this subject a little more later when I bring up Dave Malloy and Great Comet, because I really want to talk about that. But the, the general rule now, especially on Broadway, seems to be this, that anyone of any race or background or ethnicity can play any character they want, but a white person can only play a white character and never any other character, period. And that, that seems to be the general rule now from what I noticed. Yes, correct. And bonus trans, you know what I mean? That's like the ultimate. <laughs> and here's the thing, you know, I don't like ever, you know, of course now everybody calls me this awful transphobic person. I, you know what I mean? I do think there are trans people. I do think that there's a small majority of people that have gender dysphoria. I think that's probably something awful to deal with. And I, I'm like, you know what? Live and let live. Go be trans and live your best life. But I think it's become trendy. I mean, I literally think you can't just be gay now. You know what I mean? Like nobody cares, you know, but you get a big parade if you come out as trans. So I think people and then you like win the casting lottery. You know what I mean? Like now. Broadway is even having to tick that box. And you want, I mean, I can't watch a, a new show 
without there being that, you know, inclusion of the tram story. Um, so it it's just become like, I say it's become trendy to, to be trans, you know, and the whole like, I mean, children now, I mean, like, I just feel like these are adult things. So like turn 18 and then, you know, then chop your parts off if you want to, you know, but like, don't do it as a child. I mean, it's just shocking to me that we're even having these conversations. Yeah, we're very much of the same position as you for the most part. Um, And even even the 18 line is like questionable, questionable, because, you know, we we've, we've spoken to a few D trans people on our shows before who transitioned in their 20s, you know, yeah. and still, still regretted it. They didn't have their traumas and other psychological things really questioned and assessed. They were just kind of pushed through this conveyor belt of, you know, transitioning. And we think the main problem is the affirm, affirm, affirm approach. Yeah. That approach needs to change. We need to go back to watchful waiting. You don't just affirm, affirm. 18 is a good cutoff point. I think legally we should at least start there, but it's the approach itself that I think needs to be questioned. And yeah, the, the kids are, are, are being pushed into this stuff more and more. It's confusing more and more of them. You know, in, in the UK, there was like a 5,000% increase in, in girls specifically visiting gender clinics. That's not normal. That's a, that's a social contagion. And when you look at the data and you look at the research around this topic, it's like something like 80% of these, or probably more, I think, of, of these young people who have gender dysphoria, it, it desists after puberty. And they're not being given time to even figure out who they are. And a large percentage of those who desist from it, it turns out they would have just been gay or lesbian or bisexual adults. So what are we doing here? You know, what are we doing by not questioning this? We're doing conversion way? therapy on our most vulnerable, yeah. you know, our mentally disturbed or traumatized femboys and butch girls. Yeah. Like these are, you know, these are our gay, you know, the gay next generation and we're letting the medical industry and ideology just wreck them. And it's disturbing. Yeah. And you mentioned like, obviously there are people who have gender dysphoria and it doesn't necessarily desist. And we sympathize with those people. We understand like, to some extent, like that's probably difficult to deal with. I don't know what it's like experientially. Um, we've had Sarah Higdon on our show. Sarah Higdon is trans, has had surgeries and all this stuff and is fine. From and it was the right tell. decision for, for Sarah. Hopefully it stays the right decision. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the point is there are a lot of people who are regretting this and there's an increasing amount who are. Like, I think, uh, what is it, like D-Trans Reddit is like something like 40, 50,000 There's 40,000 people uh, that are regularly participating. And, and rising, you know, I think even one or two is too many to not take a step back and to ask some questions about this stuff. But, you know, what, this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on here, though, is this whole woke cultural revolution that we're seeing and how it is creating a sort of witch hunt in the country for anyone who diverts from that, especially from minorities who don't toe the Democrat leftist party line in some way. You are ostracized. You're called all of these horrible things. You're a self-hating gay. You're an Uncle Tom. It's whatever it is. And we've had quite a few people on who've experienced this every, everywhere from moderates to like former Democrats who, who had to walk away from the party. And as somebody who was in the theater space, you know, Brian, uh, you were on sort of like the front lines of culture. 
You know, you're in there, you're producing culture. Yep. And that's where the sort of leftist vanguard really, uh, really advanced themselves. Yeah. And as we see now, there's this need for people, you know, like you and, and others like James O'Keefe and how we need to sort of reclaim the cultural space for, for moderates and for people on the right. Yeah. And just so that we have this ability to create messages and culture without being excluded or, or canceled. Like, I find it completely ridiculous that, you know, because you are a white male, you know, all of a sudden you're a targeted uh, subgroup in, in, a, in a workspace. Like, this is not, this is not American. It's very un-American. Well, one more point to bring up before I let Brian respond here, but... You know, another reason I want to bring you on is just because of, like Brent said, the cultural importance of things like theater and art. And when you look at theater historically, like theater was a way for people to kind of speak truth to power and in a way that they were almost safe to do that. But it wasn't necessarily supposed to be safe either. You know, it was supposed to criticize the power structure or hold a mirror up to society. So what are we doing to our creatives? if we are limiting and restricting them in some way from being able to speak truth to power. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about theater and art is that I thought it was, I always talked about it was a bridge builder. You know, the great thing about theater is that you could bring hundreds of people into a shared communal space and you didn't know their background. You didn't know their religious affiliations. You didn't know their political ideology. And they just came and shared this group experience together. And then the experience would hopefully ignite conversation. So I constantly, even before I was political, I would talk about the power of theater, you know, creating this cool space where everybody came into it. You shared a group experience and everyone's experience might be a little bit different based on what they were bringing to the table as an audience member. Because, I mean, I'm still a hopeless romantic. You know, the heart of me thinks that we're we're all actually a lot more similar than we're different. So, I mean, the hopeless, you know, patriotic American in me hopes that we can just start to get along a little bit better. Um, but now theater, I think the art is actually suffering because there are these really bold statements being made that what we are creating is for this half of the country. And if you believe this, you are not welcome in our audience. Um, I get emails or, you know, Twitter messages weekly from actors who say, thank you so much for speaking out. There are so many of us, but we are petrified to speak what we believe or what we think or even question it because we can't afford to lose our careers. I mean, people, it's literally their livelihood. And I get it, you know, I mean, I went through it without a choice, right? It happened to me. I was ran through the fire. Would I have chosen to have gone through that? Absolutely not. But I believe that all of that was part of my journey. It was part of my path. And ultimately, one, it's making me a better artist because... As an artist or a creator, you're pulling from your life experiences. And when you have to go to hell and back, you're just a better artist. You know, you have more you have more depth to pull from. And also, I've started attracting people um, in my orbit. You know, I know we'll probably talk about Oklahoma that would have never been there otherwise. You know, my first production after a very a public year of being canceled 
you know, the majority of artists in that production had gone through something very similar. They had been canceled and they thought they would never work again. Um, so it's cool that I'm starting to attract people into my orbit that get it, you know? And here's the thing, I always say like, I'm not creating like alt-right theater. I'm not creating, you know, this like super conservative theater. I'm just trying to get back to theater being something that wasn't so, you know, divisive and so political. And this is what I say. I was like, everyone is in my rehearsal room, but I'm not going to tolerate hate. I'm not going to tolerate bullying. And I will tell you what the left is pushing in the theater industry. It is conceived in hatred. It is all about bullying and it is all about bending the knee. And I just refuse to do it. And the cool thing is that I'm the owner of my company. So if I don't like you, you're not going to work with me, you know, but unfortunately, most artists, unless you're an entrepreneur and like doing your own thing, you don't have the ability to do that, you know, but I, I do encourage artists to, to get a little bit more vocal. Um, I don't know if y'all, you know, know uh, Laura Osnes, but she was like, I mean, the star of Broadway. I mean, literally the it girl of Broadway. And she lost her career just because she didn't get the vaccine and she was trying to get pregnant and you know and now she's like an anti-vaxxer trump supporter awful racist human when all she and she's like so loving and sweet so it's like you can't even dip your toe in anything the left tells you not to do or your career's just over which is kind of crazy but again my hope is that I'm helping create something in a different space that allows anybody to be hired um, and really is getting back to this creating a group sense something that allows ideas and conversation and not just this is what you're supposed to think. Because I think the woke theater, it's like propaganda. It's shoving something down your throat and you don't have an opportunity to think. You're just told what to think, which I think ultimately is what art goes against, right? Yeah, well, they, they have this... Uh idea of diversity but they only seem to care about diversity of skin color diversity of like sexuality diversity of these things not diversity of thought they don't they don't tolerate diversity of thought you know and you mentioned attracting people into your orbit that's that's why we're here that's why we're talking to you because we've been through this as well you know brent and i were very vocal and outspoken about the lockdowns the mandates identity politics, all of the things we were seeing happening around us that we felt were detrimental to our culture in some way. And, you know, we're moderates, you know, we came from the left as well. I was more lefty when I was younger. Now I think I, I definitely lean more conservative and I guess I would be a moderate conservative. But one of the things that really put a nail in our coffin was when we first decided to do a podcast, you know, one of our first little journalistic adventures was we went to DC on January 6th to talk to people and record and to just kind of get a sense of why are these people here? Because we wanted to know. And we also knew the media was going to lie about it, whatever happened that day. And we knew whatever happened, it would probably be crazy. Little did we know like that event would change our lives entirely. I mean, the FBI showed up at my former residence in New Jersey. I wasn't there at the time. I was in New York, but they scared the crap out of my family, scared the crap out of my grandmother who was 80 at the time. And are y'all in we're we're in Manhattan right now. So and we in 2021 in March 2021 we ended up moving to Florida for a while, 
and then we stayed with a friend over there and that was where we actually formally started the podcast and then in i think the beginning of june of 2021 the fbi showed up there looking for brent to question him and we recorded that we put it on our channel and all this stuff but when that first visit happened we had to very much make a difficult choice like do we step back from this and get quiet and just kind of try to hope it all blows blows over and just live a normal life or do we get louder do we continue to speak because we knew we weren't going to participate in this witch hunt that's for sure we told the fbi to go take a hike we weren't going to talk to them because we had no interest in that and we didn't break any laws and do right. anything wrong we never never yeah. ever talk, talk to law them. enforcement <laughs> um, without a lawyer, without a lawyer you know, unless you were the victim yeah. of a crime yeah. like generally if they come to you and want to talk to you out there folks just don't do but it ult ultimately we did not hide the fact that we went we were pretty open about that and why we went to and many many people either you know a couple openly disowned us or told us why they didn't want to associate with us anymore but a lot of people honestly just kind of silently vanished from my life and pulled away friends family just dis gone dis like, disassociate anymore yeah and it's a very isolating thing to go through and you know naturally i can understand why people who have been canceled quote unquote start to congregate together and find each other because you don't have other people <laughs> to relate to who've been through something similar yeah i mean you have this shared experience it's like you you sort of don't have it's like you have a shorthand you know what i mean it's like we've all been through this awful thing and I actually have a funny story about January 6th as well. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really halfway do anything. So, like, you know, when I got vocal about politics, I was like, I'm going to volunteer nonstop. I'm going to run for office. Like, I just go balls to the wall. That's how I live life. Um, so, you know, I was very involved with the Trump 2020 reelection. Then, you know, that went sideways. And I got really involved with the Georgia Senate runoff. So, I, like, moved to Georgia for a week to help, you know, Leffler and Purdue. And so I was at that final rally that Trump did before January 6th. And, you know, I'd heard about this guy, Q Shaman. And I was like, oh, you know, he's like this guy in like horns and like, you know, Braveheart makeup and a loincloth and like 30 degree weather. It was just like the funniest thing I'd ever seen. You know what I mean? And also he's like kind of cute. So I was like, oh, like we saw we get a picture with him. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and there's like people lined up like Disney World, like sitting on Mickey's lap to get pictures with him. And um, so, you know, I go over and get a picture with Q Shaman and I'm like, you know, posting on Twitter is like Q Shaman's here. And then the next day, you know, January 6th happens and like he's the face of January 6th. And this is also when I was in the middle of this lawsuit. And so my I don't know. Well, I, I think I did read about this. There was a hit. There was a hit piece about you that I stumbled upon. I think it was on Gawker, but they mentioned that Twitter thread and it basically went viral, right? Yeah, so that's what happened. So, you know, got a picture with Q Shaman the next day, January 6th. And then I get a call from my lawyer and it's all happening. Like, these things happen lightning fast. And she's like, do you realize you're, tw you're trending on Twitter right now? And I was like, no. And she was like, well, you know, everybody thinks you're in DC and the FBI's being tagged on all this stuff. And she was just like, I hope, you know, nobody, the judge doesn't see any of this. But they literally, I mean, everyone just took it as fight. They were like, Brian's in DC. He's like besties with the Q Shaman. I mean, and th this story just went like wildfire. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And I, meanwhile, I was like, this is just so funny that there's a guy in like horns and like a pelt 
in Dalton, Georgia at a Trump rally. You know, it's like nobody has a sense of humor anymore. But that that picture is what everyone uses to like target me now. They're like, he's an insurrectionist. And meanwhile, I'm like wearing like a, a Dalton, Georgia, like Trump, you know, thing. it's like, but they just create their own. Um, but that, I mean, honestly, that is when it got <clears throat> really bad for me. That's when it felt like it was just like my career was done. I had just, you know, I was just sort of done. And that's when I almost like borderline depression, you know what I mean? Because it, it happens so fast and you feel so out of control of your life. And you feel like you have no one. And there's like that moment where you're like, why God, I'm a good person. Why do I deserve this? Why me? You sort of go through all of that stuff. But that low point is sort of what it was like, y'all. I was like, you know what? I can be done with politics. I can just go back. I'll go live in the woods and, you know, be this like, you know, lumberjack artist, you know. Or I can say, you know what? I'm going to use this experience to get even more loud and create better art. And that's when I said, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to do a production of Oklahoma. And all of these canceled artists started reaching out to me. And then I got hooked up with James O'Keefe. Um, and ultimately, it was the greatest comeback ever as far as like this theatrical story. It was like, I mean, I was like, James O'Keefe is riding on a horse in the middle of Virginia singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. I mean, it was just this epic moment. And we all kind of felt it, you know, it's like, you know what, we didn't let them win. We kept going. And since that production, you know, I've had eight productions. So it's like, we didn't let them win. And I just knew, I knew in my heart, if I could get one epic production under my belt and the woke mob would see that I wasn't going away, they would kind of like dissipate and move on to the next person. Because their goal is to ruin your life and literally make you nothing. And it's kind of a battle of like, who's going to tire out first? And like, I've got some endurance, you know what I mean? And nobody has bigger balls than me. I'm just going to say it. You know what I mean? Like, I, they hang out, they're huge, and I will keep going. And after I got that big that production on my belt, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep going. And now I rarely deal with it. You know, like I'll get random haters in my inbox. But I mean, I think they're kind of just like, oh, I guess he's going to keep going. Let's move on to somebody else. It's going to be easier to ruin. They just want to ruin your life. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, admirable that, that you powered through that and you continued to go forward. And, you know, I love that, that you ended up getting together with James O'Keefe and doing that show. I know it was a big deal for James as well. It was like his first, you know, like major role sort of thing in a, in a production. Um, and, I, and I like this idea that the canceled artists kind of just found you and then it just kind of came together naturally that way talk a bit about the oklahoma show i know you you did that i think in, that was the summer of 2021 correct well and the cool art happens organically right the, i always say the right person ends up in the room and we had already this production was already cast and announced before you know my canceling so it ended up I, you know my my best friend julie um, she was the, the female star and, you know, she stuck by me. And because of that, me and her became insanely close. And she was kind of canceled because she stood by my side. But she and I basically built that cast from the ground up. You know, she played Lori. 
And then we started having, I would say this like motley crew of canceled artists kind of came into our orbit and we started putting people in these roles. And then I knew that I wanted a real life star to be in, you know, the role of Curly. We hadn't cast Curly. And I was like, I want somebody with star power to come into this role. And um, the act, are y'all okay? Everything okay? I was just pulling up the link to to the production show, but Brent was uh, oh. you know, flipping there. <laughs> well, you said I had it, and then never mind. <laughs> oh, Brent. Um, there it is. Oh, Oklahoma. Um, so I knew that I wanted to have a real, you know, star in the role of Curly. I thought we needed some star power with all this. And so the actress or the dancer who was playing Dream Lori and the choreographer, she said, you know, I just did this like kind of random music video with James O'Keefe called, you know, Oligarchy. And she was like, I think he's kind of a performer. And I was like, well, that makes sense. Cause like, he's kind of cheesy and like over the top, but like really charming. And I was like, God, I was like, he kind of is curly. This like over the top dramatic cowboy. Um, and so he and I had a conversation. Yeah, I mean, you know, Anthony was canceled. Ariana was canceled. Julie was canceled. I mean, it was kind of this like epic, you know, canceled uh, group. Savannah was canceled. Um, so it was really cool for us to all come together anyway. So, he and I had a conversation and also like I sort of Googled him and I found this article from years ago where James had said like one of his dreams was to be on Broadway. And I was like, hmm, then the wheels started really turning. And when he and I had a conversation, he said, you know, playing Curly would be a dream for him. And, you know, it would really be about just making this. There he is on his horse. It would really be about making, and he said buff too. It would really be about, he is, he looks great on stage. <clears throat> you know, it was all about making his schedule work. Um, so, you know, he basically moved a portion of Project Veritas operations um, down to Virginia for almost two months. So he would do the show and then during the day, you know, he would be operating TV from, you know, the Virginia area. Um, and, you know, when, when James started talking, I was like, you know, I was like, I've got to have you audition. This is a fun story. I was like, you have to audition, James, because there's nothing worse than like a casting gimmick. It's like, then they turn out being really busted. So I was like, I've got to like, I've got to, because I mean, Curly's cute. It is a massive ball. I've got to know that he can at least like carry a tune and like he can take some form of direction. So I asked him to like put, oh, what a beautiful morning on tape. And it was like, it was fully produced. It was like, he was in a studio. He had like set pieces. He was in a costume. And he just like went for it, you know. And I was like, "Oh my god!" I was like, "He he is curly." Um, yeah, I mean, he was he was a joy to work with. It was interesting because <clears throat> James, like me, is used to being in charge, so I don't think he was used to someone like bossing him around. I'm very direct, um, you know. I just tell it how it is, and you know, I, I wanted him to be good, you know. So I pushed him hard, um, and we ultimately formed this incredible friendship, and he was amazing in the role. Um, you know, and then he brings me in sometimes to do acting work with his, you know, investigative journalist. So it's cool how, like, you know, that relationship has also created more opportunities, because what he does with TV, it's very theatrical. I mean, they're, they're going undercover, and you've got to have incredible um, actors who are really... They're improv. All of that's improv. You know, you've got 
that's a really good point actually when, when you really think about it yeah so so much of what they do is like you have to train these undercover investigative journalists to be able to handle themselves in these situations and to put on a sort of act i know they get a lot of criticism for their style of journalism and the way they do this, people consider it disingenuous and all that stuff. But no, I think I think we need more journalism like this. In fact, because it, it's the only way to really expose these like dark elements within within our culture and our power structure. Is you kind of got to trick them a little bit. The mainstream media certainly has no problem doing that to us and spinning lies and misrepresenting people. But the thing with Project Veritas is they don't misrepresent people. They've never lost a defamation lawsuit and any mistake that they have made is publicized right on their website and explained. And they're very upfront about those mistakes. And that's it. You know, they, they don't have anything on them is what it comes down to. They're accused of uh, manipulating the footage and editing it in a certain way. It's like, no, they're just, they're, they're cutting out the bull crap parts of those dates or whatever, you know, and they're really showing you the important parts. And I, I don't think they would be opposed to releasing the full footage and they have before of those things, but they're not manipulating it. They're literally just showing you what these people are saying, what's coming out of their own mouths and they're presenting it to us. Yeah, it's sort of like, far left, it's like, oh, uh, you know, an undisclosed White House representative said X, Y, and Z, whereas like, you know, PV, they're, they're literally, it's just coming out of their mouths, you know what I mean? And the thing is, like, they're exposing, like, really scary stuff that needs to be exposed, you know, especially stuff dealing in the school system, our elections, I mean, they're just taking the words and exposing them, and it's all based in truth, you know? Um, so, I mean, I think we need more of that. And on both sides, it's like, you know, I think there are evils on both sides of the aisle. I think that the majority of politicians, especially career politicians, I think they're pretty corrupt. And they're, you know, I, I think it's less they versus them and left versus right as far as like people who are doing it for the right reasons and people who are making these lifelong careers out of politics, you know, and like I'm definitely more Republican, but. I have libertarian tendencies as well. Like I just sort of want the government to stop telling me what to do. You know what I mean? And kind of get out of my life. And I don't want to pay any form of taxes. Like I just, that, that's fine. You know what I mean? I'll get my horse and buggy and go on a dirt trail. Like I don't need roads, you know? Like I'm just like, stop taking, you know, over a third of my income, please. Yeah, like the Project Veritas commonly gets accused of just targeting the left. And I think it's more that, it seems that way because so much of the nastiness is coming from the Democrats. Also, they're in power. Yeah. I mean, they've been in power since Obama. Like, and and culturally, they're the dominant. You know, in education, in media, the left is in power. So. Yeah, and and I'm not. I'm also not saying that all Democrats are like the same as radical lefties, but a lot of them are certainly silent about what the radical lefties do, and a lot of the politicians refuse to denounce Antifa and these sort of radical types. But yeah. also, you know, to lend to lend to this point, like Project Veritas did a story about Fox and them enforcing the vax mandates on their employees and stuff. So it's not like they don't look at the other side of the aisle in any way, and when a story appears, cover the story and, and share the information. That's that's all it really comes down to. They're journalists. They go where the story is and, and they tell the story.
Yeah, the way I tend to think about it is that, you know, the reason they hate Project Veritas is because Project Veritas tells us the truth. They get behind enemy lines, you know, they get their defenses down with the, the pretext of it being a, a date. And then they ask like sort of probing questions about what, you know, what they do at work or what their, their institution in, that they're involved in is doing. And then they tell these people, you know, thinking that they're just, you know, on a date or whatever, it's a private conversation. They tell us the truth. And that's really like, that's what grinds the gears of the media and all these, because when people see the truth, they get buggered that their manipulation isn't working anymore. It's, it's kind of why I don't even feel like it's, it's left versus right anymore. It's these, it's people who lie and manipulate and play power games and semantic power games versus people who just want to have an honest conversation and be left alone. Like we just want to, we just want to, you know, leave our kids alone. Like we just want to, and, and we, if we want to cover a news event, we want to be able to talk honestly about it amongst ourselves. And they don't like that because all of a sudden their, their BS and their manipulations become exposed. Yeah. Well, look at, look at all the, uh, you know, explanations and excuses that all of them are making now for covering up the story about the president's son and yep. you know, love the Trumps or hate the Trumps. You are in absolute denial if you think that if that was Donnie Jr., that that story would not have been plastered on every single major media outlet, every headline, and talked about for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months, perhaps. Yeah, all the Twitter files that have been dropping are very... And, like, Elon used to be, like, the cat's meow, everyone. Everyone loved him, you know? And he's not even, like super right like i mean you know his tweets are pretty balanced but he's just like speaking truth and when you start speaking truth for some reason you're labeled a crazy right-wing conspiracy theory theorist and like it's just like truth has now become the alt-right label you know when it's like journalism is no longer journalism it's propaganda you know and either you're like you're pursuing a certain narrative and then when truth you know, comes out that goes against the narrative, they freak out. But that's why they were burying all of this, because the truth went against the narrative the media was creating, and everybody was in bed with each other. You know, uh, the Democratic Party or this far left wing, they do have a monopoly on everything. Media, art, even sports. I mean, everything is super, super woke now. You know what I mean? And like randomly, I was on Instagram yesterday and like, I love Elvira, you know what I mean? Like old days Elvira. And even Elvira was posting stuff about like Democratic Blue Wave. And I was like, you're Elvira. Like why on earth are you posting all this bull crap? I will tell you the one sort of like pop icon that has somehow remained neutral her whole life is Dolly Parton. I was like, can't we all just be more like Dolly Parton? She's creating great art. She loves everybody. She openly talks about God, but she's not ever going to be, you know, divisive. She wants her audience to remain large, you know? Yeah, you know, you're right about the the control of the culture. And that is really the main subject that that we're kind of talking about on this episode here today. So what, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but it was from 2017, and it really goes to show how long this has been going on there's been a lot of build-up to the culture war that we're seeing right now but are you familiar with dave malloy yes uh, great yeah so it, it's also one of my favorites too and i i had a chance to see this show on broadway so um, i saw it when it was in the tent 
um, before it moved to Broadway. And like, I, and you know, it's like totally my style. It's immersive, it's experiential. And like my mind, my head blew off my shoulders when I saw it. I just thought it was like one of the coolest things I'd seen. Yeah, I, I saw it when they had it at the Imperial Theater already, but Josh Groban wasn't the lead role anymore. But it was it was outstanding. I'm also a fan of Tolstoy, and I love the novel War and Peace. So I was all about it, and that was why my friend, you know, got, got the tickets for us to go and see it. I, I thought it was a magnificent show. So the story I wanted to bring up was, you know, Broadway's Great Comet getting canceled, closing, because of this recasting controversy which really boils down to this. Um, the show's numbers were slipping. They weren't pulling in the amount that they were before. They weren't filling the seats. And Malloy wanted to, to temporarily recast the lead role to Mandy Pat, uh, Paddington, who was the, the actor well-known for Princess Bride. You know, I am Inigo Montoya, but he was also, you know, he was a big, big guy on Broadway as well. So he, they knew he could draw in a bigger audience. They could bring in more revenue and hopefully the show would continue on a little longer. And then the guy that they recast from was um, Okarete Onaduan, who I believe played Hercules Mulligan in Hamilton, if I'm not mistaken. And he, look, he mm -hmm. was magnificent. Yeah. He, he was great in his role. He was the he was the one playing Pierre when I saw the show, and I thought he did fine. But what it comes down to is they needed a bigger name, and they wanted to just temporarily bring one in so that the show could go on longer, and Oak was going to return to the role after this was done. Well, the internet was not happy about this, and Oak himself was like, oh, you know, they took a role from a black man, and then they just freaked out. And this was one of my early awakenings to how ridiculous the woke had become because i'm just sitting here thinking reading this story you know hearing about one of my favorite shows that getting canceled and i'm thinking these are all russian people they're all russians you're over here fighting and arguing about which color and skin color should have the role of playing a russian anyway so it's like it was already one of the most diverse casts on broadway it already was you know and it's just, it blew my freaking mind. But one of the best things to come out of all this was right after this happened, <clears throat> Dave Malloy wrote a show called Octet. Are you familiar with this? You should familiarize yourself with it. Definitely go listen to the soundtrack. I don't know if it's ever going to return to being performed. It was off-Broadway. It was off-Broadway. We saw it in the in the meatpacking um, uh, there wasn't meatpacking, but we saw uh, it in the basement of basically a cabaret. I thought it was the meatpacking neighborhood. No, this is we were down at 49th and 10th in that little, it was in that little basement uh, in a cabaret. I could have sworn it was somewhere else. But it was one of the most powerful pieces of theater I had ever experienced. And it very much had that kind of immersive feel in the way that, that you do your shows, although it wasn't like a site-specific thing, it wasn't a venue. But what was so cool about it was you know, as the audience was entering the uh, space, the cast members were intertwined with the audience as normal people. And they were, going, they were going around getting coffee, this and that. And then as we were sitting down, they started sitting down into their seats. Well, no, the premise is that we are witnessing a support group for yes. people who have an addiction to social media yeah. technology well, and stuff. I was gonna get into that. So the whole theme of the show is that you have eight characters um, one of them is leading the support group, and then you have se seven other characters. 
And each of these characters has some form of addiction that is related <clears throat> to the internet. Um, so the first, the first uh, character whose song you hear, she, she had a freak out moment in a supermarket, I believe, you know, bad day sort of thing. And it gets recorded and it ends up plaster all over the internet. And then she goes viral and it totally ruins her life. And, and her addiction is uh, look, Googling herself and looking, looking up the horrible things that everyone's saying about her and laughing about her. Another character, he's addicted to the phone games. Another one's addicted to the hookup apps. You know, another one's addicted to porn. Another one's addicted to conspiracy he's, theories. Yeah, there's a conspiracy <laughs> guy, and then there's the guy who was addicted to arguing, arguing with creationists yeah. on online forums. Like that was his addiction. Really brilliant show, and this show is really actually inspired by Malloy's cancellation of Broadway. As he he was commenting on this new modern digital age that we are living in and how in a sense we're not built for this yeah we're not built for it and like similar to what happened to you a piece of information or, or a picture or something gets out there and before the truth even has time to catch up the lie has already gone multiple times around the world and that is the story that solidifies so that i guess was what inspired him to write it right and that's why the first character whose song we hear is this woman who had this, this thing happen to her and it kind of just really ruins her life and changes people's perception. But he expanded it into an entire criticism of the digital age as a whole and what it's doing to human connection, what it's doing to the human mind and how just we're not, we're not designed for this. You know, it's not something that we're made for. Yeah, here's the thing. If social media did this, I don't think we would have these like mass cancellations because I guarantee you, like these people who came after me, they knew me. They knew my heart. I'd worked with them. All. It wasn't like I just worked with one person. I'd worked with these people multiple times. I guarantee you, they could not sit across from the table and look me in the eyes and tell me the things that they were saying. And I think also COVID and BLM, like all of that was just kind of the perfect storm for people like you know, being Looney Tunes. I mean, they just literally went crazy, you know? But yeah, these digital warriors behind their screens, without their screens, they have no power. But they feel like, you know, they can post these salacious things. And then they're like addicted to how many clicks and likes and shares. I mean, I think it's literally this crazy addiction. These actors are not getting attention. And then during this time, if they started, you know, talking about their oppression, all of a sudden they became famous again, you know? And the um, the great comment story, I followed that as well. I do think that was kind of a turning point of like, you couldn't be woke enough, you know? And the crazy thing is, yes, they just needed, it was a business decision. They needed to sell more tickets. Mandy Patinkin is a massive Broadway star. It, they were bringing him in to sell more tickets. Had Mandy Patinkin been black, and the actor they were replacing was been white, it would have been like, progress, I love it, you know? But it, it, it had nothing to do with skin color, but it became about skin color. And the thing that I sort of was upset watching that story is that like, David Malloy, he issued this huge public apology. Mandy Patinkin issued this, oh my gosh, I never meant to take away an opportunity from a black actor. And I was like, why didn't y'all just say, this is ridiculous. We did not intend for it to be this way. We simply needed to sell tickets. 
The show is about to close. In order to save the show, we needed to temporarily do this. It's like people are so afraid to openly talk about anything dealing with race that they just panic, they bow down to the mob, and they beg for forgiveness, which I think, unfortunately, perpetuates this kind of behavior. Because the mob can say, oh, you know what? If we use the like, the race card, everyone's going to like bow down and, you know, and, and then ultimately the show closed almost immediately, which then everyone was out of a job. Every actor, black, white, I mean, they were all out of jobs. So I just, I can't understand why these people can't just say, you know what? It is not what we meant. We did not intend for this to be about race, you know, but the, everyone just panics. But ultimately, it sounds like, you know, that created a new piece of art for him. You know, what are his politics? Is he because I mean, I would love to do great comment. You know what I mean? But I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't seen very much from him. He's he's been rather silent to be on, to be honest. He hasn't been very outspoken. I think his way of responding to the situation was through that show, Octet. And, and he wanted to expand it, I think, into a larger commentary about the current culture. Um, but if, if you, you know, if you listen to the soundtrack, I think you'll, you'll get a sense of what the show is about without having seen it and experienced it. But man, I just, I wish it was still around and you could experience it because like, I remember walking out of that theater. So good. And feeling like, wow, I just, I just went through something that really put its, its finger onto the pulse of our culture right now. And like that, like, this is what theater is supposed to do. It's supposed to make us walk out and just think, be thinking. Cause I, I was thinking about that show for days afterward, for days. And it was just on my mind constantly because I'm, it, I felt it, you know, I felt all the characters, they felt so real and we could all relate to them in some form of way. You talk about the clicks and all of this, we're all addicted to our tech to some extent now. And we have to keep that in check constantly. It's a dopamine hit. Of course we want the likes and the attention and we want to feel validated. Like the things that we're doing are, are being seen and being meaningful. appreciated that they're meaningful. But when we think about, the fact that we're not really much different at all from our Paleolithic ancestors. And back then you would only have, you know, maybe even just a hundred connections in your life with different people was a lot to manage and probably unheard of back at that point. But to have thousands and thousands of, to, to be tapped into all these different people and to, to see all their opinions at once, all that, it's, we're not built for this. It's not yeah. something we're, we're used to. So. No, I mean, the, the cool thing, and I'd be interested to hear about y'all's experience is like, when I got, when I went through this like very public canceling, I sort of got to start over with my relationships, you know, like, I mean, I almost started from like ground zero. I mean, I have an incredible family and there were just only a handful of people that kind of really stayed by my side. Like y'all, most people just kind of like drifted off into like the nether region, never heard from them. Um, so then I was like, you know, and I use this thing up that I love now. It's like, I'd rather have four quarters and a hundred pennies. So like at this point in my life, I'm really focused on like genuine connections with people as opposed to like the masses who just adore me, you know, because at the end of the day, those aren't real. Like when the shit hits the fan, the pennies aren't there. The quarters are there, you know? So it's like, it's been so cool. Like at this point, kind of starting over. And I hate it, but I kind of hold people just a little bit at an arm's distance now, not in the I'm closed off to, you know, connection, but I'm a little bit more guarded 
because I want to ensure anyone that I like truly invest, you know, my heart and my soul into, like they're the real deal. And, you know, for me, I think loyalty is the most valuable thing we have in relationships, you know, and you really need those people, um, you know, when the shit does hit the fan. It's like, you know, I'm really more strategic about kind of who I really let into my orbit now, whereas, you know, back in the day, I'd be like, everybody come hang out, you know? I mean, are y'all, do y'all sort of have a similar, you know, journey with, you know, y'all's situation? Definitely. And at first it was painful. And now I look at it similar to you as a, as a positive thing. It's a silver lining. It really, it revealed people for who they were and how real the connections actually were between us. And maybe they were real at one point, but certainly they had, you know, revealed themselves to have broken those connections. But it's just what one of the things I noticed over the last couple of years was that there were people who I very much expected to have been there for me yep. that weren't. And then there, there were people who I never would have expected to step up and defend me and, and to be there for me and to ask how I was doing that were. And man, I can probably count on one hand how many people reached out after I publicized that the FBI showed up looking for me and how scary that was. Like almost no one from my past reached out and said, oh my God, Dan, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, I know you're a good person. You're not all these things. You're not an insurrectionist. You're not any of that. Like that must be really scary. How are you doing? Almost no one, you know, even people I've known my entire life, like best friends and that, that sort of thing. So it definitely showed people's true colors, but in particular, what really, uh, I guess was, educational for Brent and I was, was the mandates, was refusing to get that shot. And the fact that, especially in New York City, where we had the strictest mandates and segregation, like we're talking about Broadway right now, for months, I could not go into a Broadway show. I was segregated. And just to see how many people that I knew refused to stand up for me and say, you know, hey, I got the shot, but my friend here didn't, and I don't think it's right that he should be denied from entry into these places and this and that, that really revealed people a lot to me, like who's gonna be there for you and who's not. I like your analogy, you know, I'd rather have four quarters than a hundred pennies. I think it's apt, it makes a lot of sense. And the positive side as well is, is doing this podcast and how it forced us to really go more into this more, to become entrepreneurs, to start our own thing like you did. And we've been able to fill that void with meeting new people, making connections like with you and other guests that we've spoken to, George Alexopoulos, Gothics, Carrie Smith, Mike Harlow, like really amazing people who've become friends of ours. And it's that, that's been the, the good aspect of this is that, you know, when those fake people go away and you really start to be yourself and to be real more and to truly live in that way, you will attract more of those people into your orbit and can hopefully open up to them and, and get closer with them. Yeah, I had more like friends than family that just sort of like disappeared. I had a whole big gay friend group of people here in New York City and basically lost track with all of them. Uh, I have a handful still left, you know, of the dozens of people I used to regularly associate with, go out with, know, you know, see in the city. A lot of them moved out during COVID uh, and the ones that stayed here just sort of like 
you know, they don't, they won't talk to me anymore because they're, they're in the cult is how I think of it. You know, they're in this ideological cult where masks are required, where the injection is like a holy sacrament. And if you don't want to participate in it, then you're in the out group and you should be. That's how they see us. Totally. But I also think, I mean, and kind of last thought on my end is like, I do think that relationships sometimes have expiration dates. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I don't know. Here's the thing. I think as, I think as humans, kind of like every 10 years, we're kind of like reinventing ourselves. And it's like, I don't know. I think that a lot of times friendships and relationships, they're really good for a certain part of your life. But as you become a different person, they become a different person. Sometimes I think it's fine to let things go. And, you know, for me, it's like I went through a lot of like anger and heartbreak. But like now I can look at some of these relationships and be like, oh, my gosh, we had the best time during that sort of chapter of my life. And I still love them and I wish them well. But it's no longer healthy for either of us to be, you know, in a relationship. And guess what? Now I have this space in my life to attract new people like y'all. I, I mean, we would have never been talking had all three of us not gone through a similar experience. And that's what I think is the thrilling thing about life is that you never know what tomorrow holds. And at this point, like I'm a lot less afraid than I have ever been. And I think a lot of this behavior from people who are silent or kind of leave you, I think it all stems from fear. I think fear is the most powerful emotion. And I'm like, I used to be afraid to like fly or like afraid to like do sort of dangerous things. And now I'm like, you know, what if I die, I die. I was just like, you know what I mean? If a serial killer comes in this house, you know what I mean? I mean, I'll blow their head off first. But like, you know, like, I don't know. There's just something really incredible about kind of emotionally going to like your boundaries. It really makes you fearless. And I I feel like when you truly are able to let go of the majority of fear, that's when you're really living. And that's when you're really in the moment and just kind of devouring what life has to offer. And when things are really negative in my life right now, I say, there's a reason for this. It sucks right now and I don't understand it, but I know in my heart I am meant to go through this. And ultimately, it is going to be for a greater purpose. Yeah, I think that's uh, where faith can also play a role in all of this. It's just kind of having that faith that all of this is happening for a reason. Things are going to work out. Uh, you know, I, de I definitely agree with the expiration date thing when it comes to friendships and relationships. I think that is true. You know, some just kind of run their course and they were only meant to be for a certain chapter of your life. And I'm similar. I, I don't hold any ill will for the most part against these people. Um, maybe some of them, the relationships will always be cold forever, but if some of them reached back out to me and, and were sincere and apologized and all that stuff, you know, I would open my arms back up and, and accept it. But I think I'm always going to have that. Yeah. Keeping people at an arm's length now after everything that I've been through, which is actually like yeah. the, it's, it's good it's that we do that. Yeah. You know, like we should it's be healthy. generally mistrustful of people we don't know. Yeah. You know, because you never know how somebody's going to react in a situation as, until you know how they're going to react in a situation. And, you know, most people are fickle. They're easily influenced. They tend toward deception. 
uh, and, and maybe this is like a little bit misanthropic of me, but after going through, you know, the COVID lockdowns and all the mandates and all that stuff, like, and seeing most people sort of just go along with it, like now I'm, I'm even more skeptical and critical of, of, you know, the pennies, shall we say, um, than ever before. Yeah. Well, but we still have those quarters, you know, and it revealed who the quarters are. Hey, there's always more quarters. Yeah. And it made more space in our pocket for a couple more quarters in there. Cause I, I do think there are those relationships and friendships that no matter what, no matter what you go through, they will be lifelong. But as, as you get older, you know, you realize just how few those people actually are. And as you live more and more true to who you are and you start to shed that fear, that's really going to reveal like who is, who is going to be there for you. Who's going to be in your corner when shit hits the fan, when things get dark, when things get the toughest, you know, that you've been through, who's going to stand up for you? Who's going to be there in some way? But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ultimately grateful when I look back over the last couple of years and there's not very much I would change. Um, maybe I would have did a couple things differently, but for the most part, I would have did it all again. I would have spoke up just as much, you know, and probably even more so in certain ways. So I'm, glad, I'm grateful. Yeah. Um, that's one way for people like, you know, people like us that have a tendency towards truth and objectivity, we almost have to engage in those behaviors or we self-destruct, you know, we right. suffer negative emotional repercussions like depression and, you know, self, self, uh, self-harm and things like that. Plus we've just met so many amazing people <laughs> after becoming truer and more truthful. You know, like you said, this conversation never would have happened if we didn't have that shared experience. There's other people in my life who I've connected with that I wouldn't have even been able to expect or predict or dream of, you know, like you and James O'Keefe and those sorts of things. And it was because we spoke out, because we remained true and we didn't, you know, cater to the lies and bend a knee out of fear. I also do think that, you know, I think that God only puts the strongest people through these things. And I do think that we are, like you said, like I'm actually grateful for my entire two years. I mean, it was, again, the hardest thing I ever went through. But I do think that I was able to very publicly, you know, confront all of these things and pursue truth um, and, and in a way that's inspired other people to do the same thing. And that's our ultimate goal, right, is to help people and to inspire others to speak out and, you know, pursue their truth. And again, truths can be different for different people, but ultimately you want to be living an authentic life, being very self-aware. And it takes people like the three of us who have to go walk through the fire you know, to really come out stronger and then speak about our experience um, and, and really show that these things you go through in life ultimately are, are to help and to make you stronger and to ultimately make you better human. So the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap it up, because um, we didn't really touch on it, is you ran for office in Florida, correct? And I wanted to ask a bit about that and, you know, if you plan on continuing in politics in some way. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about life, I always say when opportunities present themselves, you go for it, right? So I had gotten very political um, in Bay County, Florida, where, you know, it's my permanent residence. And, um, you know, people, you know, you walk into like the Republican headquarters and the age skews older. You know what I mean? It's so, like I come in and I'm like, I get to be super young in that world. So, of course, I love that. I'm like this young, cute little thing they're all obsessed with. And I was just like, like anything I do in life, I want to be the best. So 
I became like the star volunteer, grassroots, knocking on doors like nobody's business. And I really enjoyed it because I was able to connect with people. I'm like, ultimately, that's fun to connect with people. And it was so cool to be so authentic and open. You know, I'm, I'm a big Trump supporter. I, you know, like I'm a MAGA guy through and through. So for me, it was really fun to like just be like very open about it all. And then people started saying, you know, have you ever thought about running for office? And I'm like, oh, gosh, no. I would like I have zero desire to do that. And then, you know, we realized or I realized that the um, state house seat in my district was becoming available. You know, and those really become open every eight years because the incumbent typically always wins. So people started really saying, you should think about doing this. Um, and I don't know, you know, something in my heart told me I should do it. And like with everything in life, the idea of not doing it felt scarier than doing it. So I basically took off nine months from work and made the campaign my, my full-time job. Um, ultimately, you know, I didn't win, but I don't know. There was so much peace in what I did. And I felt like I created like this movement of change directly in my community and saw all these people who had never really had a voice in politics you know, get excited and show up. And we created this huge grassroots movement. And my district, like a lot of these, like, you know, Republican strongholds, it's like the good old boy is picked and it's like their time to run. And all they do is raise a ton of money. But the cool thing is like, I rattled the establishment like to its core. They didn't know what to do with me. You know what I mean? Like I was just out there like knocking on doors and throwing fun events. And, you know, Rick Grinnell came in and, you know, it was just like this, cool vibe um and the the exciting thing is you know typically in these house races i don't know they raise like one hundred fifty thousand dollars. but my opponent he had to raise half a million dollars to win i raised under a hundred thousand dollars and i still got over a third of the votes and i knocked on more doors than it ever happened in that district we knocked on twenty thousand doors and when i say twenty thousand it's like Literally for nine months, every Saturday and Sunday, we knocked on doors. So I feel like my purpose in that whole thing was to kind of chip away at the establishment and open the door for more like non-politicians to run. And, you know, the, the night before the election, I went to bed at such peace. I said, I have done all I could possibly do. If I win, this is my next chapter. If I don't, it's not meant to be. And I still have so many other things I love, you know, I theater and all of this. And so like when I didn't win, it was like, okay, you know what I mean? Like wasn't meant to be, you know, like everyone was just, it was like a funeral. I mean, while, you know, like the cameras are in your face and you got to step up and be fun. But I don't know, I wasn't devastated. Um, I felt like I was supposed to do it. I felt like I was really good at it, um, especially that grassroots connecting with people and giving people a voice that hadn't had a voice before. And immediately after I was like, okay, I'm definitely running again. Like I, I want to do this, but it's been interesting taking just a little bit of a break from politics, um, you know, and having done a lot of theater this fall, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it would have to be the right opportunity. I'm not closed off to it, but also the cool thing about, you know, running for office is, you know, the majority of our life, biggest political leaders they didn't win their first time you know they had to run multiple times and i learned so much about 
sort of the election process. And again, you know, the sort of like sweet, you know, bright eyed, bushy eyed telling me was like, oh, I don't need to raise money. I just knock on a bunch of doors. But the financial component, it is key. You know, so I do think going into the next one, if I ran again, you have to have that financial component and you have to have the like grassroots movement because, I mean, typically the person who went, raises the most money wins. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's unfortunate that that's how it works, but that is the reality of the situation. And honestly, I think, you know, despite all of that and despite you not winning, it sounds like you learned a lot from the experience and that's the most important part about <laughs> And another thing, yeah, too, and having fun is, you know, that's the best part. You yeah. get to do something, you get to learn a lot, you get to have fun. I mean, I didn't, we didn't jump right into, you know, dangerous rhetoric. I had, I, I tried video game streaming for a while and then I had a solo channel that got, you know, nuked on YouTube. So it's persistence is the key in, in any pursuit, you know, career, hobby, you know, whatever it is you have, if you really want to do it, you have to keep trying and every obstacle that's thrown up in your way, every failure that's thrown up that you have, you have to say, regardless, I'm going to keep going, you know, and, and this is the, the thing you have to navigate the situation. Is this something that I'm called to do that I feel really strongly about? Or was this just something like, you know, that I had a whim for and is not really where I want to put my long-term focus. Yeah, or that's, Everybody has to decide that. Or for it just wasn't meant to be, even right. if you had that calling for it, you know, maybe it was meant to only be that temporary thing that you went through learning from and then you're just like all right it's not meant to be i move on from it but you know another point i wanted to bring up was that i think people like you are actually best suited for for these positions especially at the local level it's the people who don't want the power and the prestige who really have no interest in in that who are probably best suited to these positions of of running the government and Ironically, those typically aren't the people who get in and win. You know, it's always the people who have that narcissistic kind of almost psychopathic need for the attention and the power and, and the control. And, and I think they enjoy that far more than they enjoy serving. And that's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be public service. What is uh, what's next for you, Brian? Like, are we do we have a you have another production yeah, coming? That was like... gonna that was gonna be the last thing I asked about is you know what are the current shows that you're working on and what's what's happening next? Yeah, so we have shows running um, the Christmas Carol experience, which is really cool. You know, uh, like Sleepy Hollow and Christmas Carol, like I love taking these like well-known classics and kind of turning them on their heads. So we have a production running in Texas right now, and we just opened a production in Virginia, um, actually near um, the area where we did Oklahoma. So I'm, you know, I'm in Virginia right now. And in two months, we have done four productions. So I will tell you, my goal for January is to sleep <laughs> because, you know, we came right off the election straight into back to back shows. Um, and I will tell you, there has been kind of an overwhelming amount of interest in venues reaching out to me, wanting to bring shows there. there. So, you know, it's kind of inspiring to think, oh, you know, for a while I thought oh, I'd have to be begging people to work places. But now all of a sudden. You know, things feel a lot different, um, you know, so I do think there's tons of opportunity. But again, I want to be really strategic about what I do in the future, whereas like I used to just say yes to everything and more is more. But I want to live, you know, um, and I do think that enjoying the projects your own rather than just doing as many as you can is kind of the next step for me. Um, and I really want to make good art in this alternative kind of, you know, non-political or more independent thinking space. 
because like you said, the culture war, I mean, there's like some really busted right wing stuff. I mean, like, I don't need to see any, like, bad music reviews from, like, conservative conferences anymore, like, in Party City costumes. Like, I just don't need to see that, you know? Like, I don't think that helps sort of, like, the the cause, but I do think, like, I want to continue being in this space where anyone is welcome. You know, you don't have to be X, Y, and Z or do X, Y, and Z to work with me. And I want to bring art to places that are a little bit more rural, like the country of Virginia, because I think that, I think everybody deserves good art and entertainment and escape, um, rather than just catering to the far left, woke, big city crowds. You know, like everybody deserves good art. And also, it's also, it's needed more on the conservative side, because look, conservatives tend to not value those things as much. And we've talked about this before in our show, on Carrie Smith's show. And one of the things I bring up is, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about the big five personality scale and how conservatives tend to be more on the conscientious side. And they're really good at running structures and things when they're already in place. Whereas people who are liberal tend to be more on the openness to experience, openness side. They tend to be more creative, entrepreneurial, artistic. They come up with the good ideas and the innovative things, although they're not so good at running a structure once it's already in place. And you need the conversation between both sides. And the thing with the conservatives is because temperamentally they tend to be more on that side, they don't seem to value art as much. You know, like if you're an artist and you complain about not being able to get work or make a living off of it, a lot of them will just, you know, revert to the pull yourself up by your bootstraps response which I get, and it's true, but they'll say, well, that's your fault. You got an art degree. You know, maybe you should have got a more useful degree. And it shows this kind of general unappreciation for the creative side of culture. And I think it it needs to change because if, if conservatives want to become more relevant culturally, they have to take these things more seriously because the people you're up against, they got huge budgets yeah. and they're going to keep rehashing the same old crap and, and people will keep watching it just because it's flashy and all of that. And even if it's lacking in substance, so we need to counter that, have the flashy things too, but counter it with substance and not browbeat the way that the woke does. They browbeat you with the political message. If we can somehow bring art and make it more important to the conservative side, we can restore some balance in the country and just show that art is supposed to really include and appeal to all types of people without having to browbeat them with a specific political message. Bridge, we need, we need art to create more bridges. Totally. Yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the things I noticed. I've, I've gotten more into, like, we started Dangerous Rhetoric as sort of just like a talk show where we have conversations, but I've gotten more into the going on location and, and engaging with antagonistic perspectives kind of vibe. Uh, and so one of my favorite things is now is to go out there and to talk to these people. And it is sort of like a performance, like we're kind of, you know, ad lib mocking, you know, them on the fly or responding to, you know, what they're doing. And it, it, it I never really felt like I was a performer. But now once I've gotten more into being on camera at these events, it, it does feel kind of performing, like you're trying to create an impression by, you know, putting on a display for for an audience. It's just, they're not live, you know, you're recording it for a camera and people are watching clips on the internet. But and I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a painter and a poet and, and all that. So I definitely understand the creative mind and how difficult it is to monetize those sorts of things. And especially being in New York city right now, 
you're you're i mean if you're not woke you're basically cast out from the art scene so we have to forge our own way and to really create our own spaces in the sense and just like you're doing you know absolutely I think on that note, we can wrap it up. Um, Brian, you want to remind everyone where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm Brian, I guess, have a blessing and a curse. <laughs> so uh, just my name, uh, B-R-I-A-N-C-L-O-W-D-U-S. That's my Twitter handle, my Instagram handle. Um, and then my website's just briancloudus.com. Um, you know, if you want to come check out our performance, um, hit me up. Also, if you've got a cool venue um, that you would love to see, um, you know, some cool art, hit me up. I love making site visits, connecting with people. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to connect with you two. And I mean, y'all are so sweet and seem so great. So hopefully I look forward to becoming, you know, y'all's friends, maybe even a quarter at some point. Um, but no, I really appreciate what y'all are doing. And, um, you know, we all need to stick together because, there's power in numbers. Um, and also we got to support each other. You know I mean? We need a, a friendship network and sometimes you just got to check in on your buddies and be like, Hey, I love what you're doing. And you know, us small business owners and entrepreneurs, we need to support each other and we need to really champion each other because that's how we create an exciting movie. Agreed. I think that's a good message to end on. And, you know, look, if you're ever in New York city, hit us up. We'd love to get together and hang out, have some drinks, have some coffee, do all that cool stuff and chat more about these things. And, you know, I would love to see you be able to put a show on here at some point, although it's going to be a little difficult because <laughs> Manhattan is woke central, woke central, you know, we were talking about Broadway and all that stuff, but it would be nice to see the culture shift a little more in that direction where someone like you would be able to do that and have it really pop off and be successful. But what it comes down to is we're going to have to make it happen. We're going to have to find our own space and do it and sell the tickets and draw the audience. And if the woke people don't want to come, fuck it. They don't have to come. They can go watch the next woke show on Broadway. We'll do our own thing and, and you know, fight back in our own way with, with art. So well, I have people. That's what I, that's good for press, right? It, it is good for press. You know, what is the old saying? Uh, no publicity is bad publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity. So, hey, you know, if some protesters want to show up to a Brian Clotus, Clotus production and protest it, then whatever. We'll just, you know, you'll attract more people to it. Free advertising. Ready. <clears throat> All right, folks, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, uh, share the show with your friends, yeah. give us a donation, check out Brian's website, follow him on social media, and we will be back again soon yeah. with another one. And the audio was a little choppy, but we apologize for that. There's always some kind of like tech issue here and there. That's okay. Thanks for watching, guys. Brian, thank you so much, and we'll be in touch, man. Wishing you luck. All right, got to end the recording. Bye-bye.